is a film called Bruce Almighty, uh, a light, a light comic film with the actor Jim Carrey, who plays a man whose life is falling apart. After the worst day of his life, he's driving back through the rain, and he prays out loud in the car, and he asks God for a sign. He says, okay, God, you want me to talk to you? Then talk back. Tell me what's going on. What should I do? Give me a sign. And he, pass, he passes a, a, a yellow caution light that's blinking and saying, caution, caution, but he doesn't notice. He then prays even more, I'm right here, speak to me. And at that moment, a pedestrian steps into the road in front of the car, jumps back and shouts out, slow down. But Bruce is oblivious. He prays again, all I need is some guidance. Please, send me a signal. And at that moment, a lorry transporting road signs pulls right in front of his car. And the signs that are pointing towards his window say this, yield, wrong way. Dead end. Do not enter. Stop. <laughs> and he shakes his head and says, oh, no sign. I guess you just don't care. Sometimes we miss the things that are right in front of us. Just give me a sign. Pharaoh gets ten. They're traditionally referred to as the ten plagues. That's not how the Bible actually talks about them. The Bible calls them signs or wonders. A sign in the Bible is something from the physical world that's selected to represent something else and to teach us something. So Christians eat bread and drink wine to remember the body and blood of Jesus. So something ordinary, the bread and the wine, are given a special meaning to remind us of something greater. Now the other word apart from sign is wonder and that is something out of the ordinary. It's a disruption of the status quo, usually a disastrous one. When God does wonders, everyone isn't going, Wee! These wonders carry a warning. Worse things will happen if you don't change direction. And in Exodus, after setting the scene for the first seven chapters, God now unleashes the forces of creation against Pharaoh who will not let his people Go. Now, the last few weeks, we've been thinking about how Moses has been interacting with the Lord and struggling with the, the, the call and the, the mission that he's been given and how God has been so patient with him and engaged with him and taught him and nurtured him through this process to actually go to Pharaoh. And we realized we've learned how Pharaoh's first response was not um, compliance and not uh, understanding, but one of brutality and oppression, uh, like a totalitarian dictator. Uh, Pharaoh is, is the, uh, the Stalin of the ancient world. And so Moses has been discouraged and the people have been broken. But we know that God is concerned. We know that he's in control. And we know that he will act on his own timetable. But something evidently is more important than just a quick fix. It's that we get to know the Lord. Now these signs that we've been reading some of today, are not arbitrary things. They are carefully selected because like an expert teacher, God has a brilliant lesson plan. And the goal of what he's doing here is to teach us so that everyone will know who the Lord is. Pharaoh will know, the Egyptians will know, the Israelites will know, and so will we. It's a lesson plan.
Now, you know those memory games that people play? It's the kind of thing that our family does at Christmas. Kids go out, they get a tray, and they put loads of objects on it. You know, they put some car keys and a coin and a book and all sorts of objects. And then they cover it with a tea towel and bring it in. And then everyone's got, I don't know, 30 seconds. You know, they pull it back. And you have to remember how many items are, and then they put it back on. And how many can you remember? You know, most people can actually remember a list of about six or seven things. These 10 things are here in the lesson plan to make sure that everyone gets the message. And the 10 signs increase with intensity as they go on. They start with inconvenience. The waters of the River Nile turn to blood, another word for red. It means pollution on a massive scale. The water becomes undrinkable. And this is a shot across the bowels, we might say. Turn back now. It's highly inconvenient for the Egyptians. They rely on the Nile. But they can do something about it. They can dig along the edge of the riverbank and get fresh water. So they, they've survived so far. Now, the second sign is a massive infestation of frogs. Some of our neighbors down here in Chesington had a frog pond specially designed by a, a talented gardener in this church. And they love to go out there in the summer and look at the little frogs all lined up along the side of the pond and enjoy the sight of nature there in Chesington. And it's quite nice seeing frogs. But you wouldn't want to see that many, would you? Now, these are getting a little bit more inconvenient. Piles of frogs dying everywhere and smelling. And... Then there's a swarm of gnats. This is getting worse. This brings back memories to me of a trip I took with a friend who was an outdoor mat sort of man to the, the woods, the remote woods of northern Maine, way up into, actually, borders with Canada, he took me up there with a canoe and a tent and a bunch of food, and we went to have a great time, and I was smothered from head to toe in insect repellent, and it did no good. It was like all the gnats in Maine got the signal that there was something new on the menu, English flesh. We will eat the blood of an Englishman. I got eaten alive. I was wearing shorts. I got home, and I actually put my leg which was throbbing and on the side. And I counted how many bites were there, just below the knee on one leg, 53 bites. My friend had three bites on his entire body. Like, not an outdoors type. Now, up until this point, the Egyptian magicians had been able to re reproduce some signs through their own dark arts and trickery. They managed to somehow get a snake to appear when a, when a stick was put on the ground. They managed to turn some water into red stuff, and they managed to get some frogs to appear as well. So they were doing so, it's like David Blaine of <laughs> the ancient world, you know. But with the gnats, they are left scratching their heads, as well as the rest of their bodies. <laughs> These guys are listening. I don't know about the rest of you. Come on, wake up. We've got a long way to go yet. So they conclude in chapter 8, verse 19, it's the finger of God implying that whatever happened before wasn't really anything to do with God. But this is not a trick. The whole thing has been God at work. And the signs continue to intensify. Swarms of flies, followed by devastating livestock disease, probably carried by the flies. And then everyone is afflicted with boils and running sores on their skin. Ah, yeah. This is the, just the first six signs. 
And the seventh sign starts to escalate things even more because at this point, the Lord himself expands on the purpose of these plagues. And it's on page 66 if you have the church Bible. If you're reading in your own Bible, it's chapter 9, verse 14 to 16. God says, this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God isn't just wiped them out. He's giving them opportunity to learn and to know who he is. But Pharaoh continues to resist. And so the seventh sign rains down massive hailstones which smash into property and fields and cause huge damage. Now if you look on Wikipedia later today, you can find a list of storms like this in recent history and it is really extraordinary what a storm can do. These things happen. But this one comes at the specific bidding of Moses, who is told to stretch out his hand towards the sky so that hail will fall all over, all over Egypt on people and animals and everything growing in the fields. So, it, so that no one can be any, in any doubt that this is at the Lord's bidding. It's through Moses' agency. And then the eighth sign is a swarm of locusts. Incredible plague of locusts who come in and they strip the land of any remaining vegetation. And by this stage, even Pharaoh's closest advisors are saying, throw in the towel. In chapter 10, verse 7, they say, don't you realize that Egypt is ruined? But like Mrs. Thatcher, Pharaoh is not for turning. And the ninth sign has this kind of hint of finality about it because it is darkness. Darkness descends on the land. And just as the story of the Bible began in total darkness and chaos, before the creation of light and life, so now the land of Egypt is returned to darkness. There's something final about it. And Pharaoh warns Moses never to return to him again. Pharaoh is cutting off the phone line. There is no possibility for further communication. The lesson is over. Any future opportunities for signs are removed. He walks out of the classroom. But there is one more to come. The final curtain. And it is so final that the text extends the description. Moses and Aaron return again to warn the Egyptians. It will be the most severe sign, both personally and theologically. No one should live to see the death of their own child, yet the death of the firstborn is what will happen. In the ancient Near East, in the ancient world, the firstborn is your future. And in the Egyptian world, the firstborn son of Pharaoh is the incarnation of God himself. All the hopes of the people are in that firstborn. So this is the final blow to the dynasty, the severing of the royal succession. Pharaoh went ten rounds with Yahweh, and he lost. Now, the point of all this is not for us to ask how. It's for us to say, wow. We modern Western people often want to know scientific explanations for things. How, does, how did that work? The point of this is not 
for us to find out how, but for us to say, wow, to be impacted by it. We Christians tend to ask our Bible for life lessons, life hacks. How does this apply to my life? We want a clear application. We want to know, what does this mean for me on Monday morning? And we're right to ask that. But how can you apply these 10 plagues to your life? The scriptures are going to do something deeper here than just an instant application. Because the main purpose of this lesson plan, the main point of the 10 signs, is to call us to worship. And worship is not just the singing part of a Sunday service, by the way. Or we would only be worshiping for about 25 minutes a week. Worship is the whole of your life. Worship means to give worth to someone greater than you. Worth-ship. And you do that by serving them with your whole life. This text is calling us to worship the true God when all the fakes and all the counterfeits and all the pretenders have been exposed as a sham. And it's calling us to that goal of worship by showing us who God really is and what he is really like so that we will be in no doubt about who it is we should worship. Now, what is this God like? I've got three points, and I don't think we've got time for them all. The only preacher I've ever heard say, partway through a sermon, well, I've, I've run out of time, and that's, I'm not going to finish. The only person I've ever heard say that is my dad. So, you know, the apple may not have fallen very far from the tree today. So we've got three points. We might only do two. The maker of, he's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the God of justice and love. And he's the, he gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. The maker of heaven and earth. Many years ago, an American uh, Christian thinker and writer called Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called The God Who Is There. The God Who Is There. And he followed it up with a sequel called He Is There and He Is Not Silent. Now that is in comparison with the Egyptian gods and their magicians and Pharaoh. This 10-point lesson plan is designed to teach them that the living God, Yahweh, is real. He's the God who is there. He's firmly in control. He's even in control of the, the natural world, the environment, which Egyptians worshipped. He's in control of the process of deliverance. Pharaoh can twist and turn and lie and manipulate and trick, but all to no avail, the deliverance happens just as God said it would. This God is real. Yahweh speaks, he responds, he answers, he listens, he engages. So let me ask, do you know this God? Have you engaged with him? I don't mean learning facts about him, as in a kind of acquisition of knowledge only, acquiring data, but actually engaged with God personally? Have you taken your life to him and brought it into his presence and poured it out to him and sought him? You may think that God would not answer, but have, have you tried? How long did you pursue him for? And when you were pursuing God, were you willing to change? The New Testament says that God is not far from any one of us. 
that he's designed history in such a way that peoples and nations will live in certain times and places in history and so that we might reach out for him and perhaps find him because he is not far from any one of us. He is real. Have you found him? He's not only real, but he is powerful, and his power is cosmic, which is what we would expect from the maker of heaven and earth. These ten signs are an example of what the theologians call the doctrine of concurrence. Concurrence is when things happen at the same time. So, for example, we know that the rain comes from clouds, don't we? Rain comes from clouds. Yet the Bible also says that God makes it rain. God gives the rain. So where does the rain come from? Is it from clouds or from God? The answer is both. These ten signs are not actually supernatural occurrences. They are hypernatural. They're intensifications of what happens in the world of nature. Frogs do reproduce. Gnats do come up on the land and bite people. There is light and dark. There are boils, etc., etc. God works through agents. God works through his creation. He respects his creation. And here he shows what would happen if his creation was not held together by his loving principles. It would go wild. We often refer to the laws of physics. You've probably heard that phrase. Some school children here are still suffering, learning about the laws of physics. I, I pity you. I really do. Apologies to any science teachers. The laws of physics are the laws of nature. These are this is a mistake, actually. They are the laws of God. The world isn't just set up and runs like a watch. God is constantly sustaining it all the time and providing it. And it's his order that we read and call the laws of physics. Without God's constant, moment-by-moment sustaining of this world, it would, go, it would run amok and we would face a return to darkness and death itself. Because these signs, these ten signs, are moments of decreation. Decreation from the Creator. They are the opposite of what the good God wants for his world. Water becomes no longer water. Well, water's life-giving. Now they can't get what water becomes deathly to them. Insects and amphibians swarm out of control. The numbers are out of control. The size of the hailstone. Darkness that descends, taking away life. It's a pre-creation state of affairs that we haven't seen since Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very beginning of, of the world. These ten plagues are showing us what happens when humankind exalts itself against God and manufactures its own gods, these are the consequences of idolatry. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. And we can see that in our own time as the effects of human greed and exploitation of the created world are now reaping terrible consequences around the world. Some of the famines and the terrible conditions that have happened have been the direct results of things that we've done, deforestation and the like, burning fossil fuels. After the 20th century with world wars, dictators, chemical weapons, biological weapons, atomic bombs, ethnic cleansing, we really know what decreation looks like, don't we? 
It's the opposite of what the faithful creator wants for his world. These plagues are showing us the consequence of following false gods. So what about you and me? Dear friends, anything or any person that you exalt and trust in the place of God is an idol, a false substitute. And idols are destined for destruction. Pharaoh clung to them and learned this to his cost. Your idols can't save you. In fact, they could kill you. We need to know the Lord. Who can make the heavens and the earth do his bidding like this? Only the supreme ruler of the universe, the king of kings, the one who commands the forces of creation. This tenfold lesson is designed to make us stop in our tracks and reckon with someone who is so much bigger than me. So we've thought about God's awesome power, the maker of heaven and earth. But what about his character? What is God like? We live in a society that is now deeply suspicious of power and of anyone who wields it, and rightly so, after the abuses of power that we have seen and that have come to light. So how does this Lord use his awesome power? He is, after all, unaccountable to anyone greater than himself. What is he like? And the answer is, secondly, he's a God of justice and love justice and love. Some years ago, the newspapers reported a story, terrible story, of a deaf and mute girl who was trafficked into Britain at the age of 10 from Pakistan. And she was kept as a virtual slave by a couple in the city of Salford, north of England. And eventually, the truth came out. The couple, who had assets worth more than £1 million, were ordered to pay the girl 101,000 pounds, sorry, 101,300 pounds and 72 pence under a compensation order made by the judge. This payment was for the forced labor of the victim who could not be named for legal reasons. The payment was calculated on the basis of what she would have been paid under minimum wage legislation for working for the family 12 hours a day seven days a week for 10 years with only 10 days off. The chief superintendent said, the money will in no way make up for what she went through over a number of years, but it will help her move on with her life and continue her inspiring recovery from these awful events. What do you think of that? 101,000 pounds, 10 years of slavery. Was it just? We all want justice. We, we know that. It is one of our deepest instincts, a profound instinct across the entire human race. We all want justice. The great Christian writer C.S. Lewis talked about listening to people quarrel and how it revealed their desire for justice. He says, everyone has heard people quarreling I believe we can learn something very important from it. People say things like this. 
How did you like it if anyone did the same to you? Or, leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. That's my seat. I was there first. Why should you shove in? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you some of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day. Educated people, uneducated people, children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the person who makes them is not merely saying that the other person's behavior doesn't happen to please them. They are appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which expect the other one to know about. You know, leave them alone. They're not doing you any harm. There's some sort of appeal to a standard there. And the other person very seldom replies, to hell with your standard. Nearly always they try to make out that what they've been doing really doesn't go against the standard, or that if it does, there's some special excuse. They pretend there's some special reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first shouldn't keep it, or that things were quite different when they were given the bit of orange, or that something has turned up which lets him off keeping his promises. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you would like to call it. A friend of mine was a pastor in the city of Boston in America and a church member committed an armed robbery with some colleagues. After the armed robbery, they went back. <laughs> this is a true story, only in America. They went back to the accomplice's house and in the... In, the aftermath of the burglary, they had an argument about the stuff they'd stolen, and the church member stabbed his colleague in the heart with a knife so deeply that they were unable to pull it out. And he went to prison. And when he was in prison, my friend, who was pastor, went to visit him. And they were sitting in this um, interview room, and the chap was there, and my friend was talking to him, and he mentioned the crime, and the, the inmate said, the church member said, well, you know, everyone's saying I did a terrible thing to that guy, but he wasn't such a good guy, you know. We can always find a reason to excuse our behavior. How do we define what's just? What is that standard to which we appeal? The highest standard, the highest bar for justice. According to the Bible, the standard is God himself. He defines justice. And so God can't be judged by some separate measure of abstraction that's kind of out there in the universe because he's the ultimately just one, the God of justice. And so what we see in these ten signs are consequences to what Pharaoh and the Egyptians had done. Anyone who's raised a child or taught a child, or even been a child, knows this. Sooner or later, an adult is going to say to you, if you do that, there will be consequences. You've probably heard that a few times. If you continue down this road, there will be consequences. There are consequences, and there are here. The slavery and mistreatment of the Israelites had been extended for decades. So the plagues are drawn out, not instant. The Egyptians had subjected those Israelite people to loss of well-being, to loss of property, to loss of liberty, to loss of life. They degraded them and broke them. They crushed their spirit. They cried out. They killed them. You see, there are consequences now 
to that conduct. God is not absent from his world, nor ignorant of injustice. The bullies and the tyrants and the oppressors and dictators will not finally get away with it. Justice will come. Martin Luther King often said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And it bends that way, not because of something in the impersonal universe, but because the universe is governed by a personal God whose being and nature is to bring justice about. But if we only thought about God's justice today, we would have an imbalanced picture of him. Because the Bible fills in the picture with another dramatic statement, God is love. God is love. And his love is seen here for how he fights for the Israelites. Not because they deserve it, but because he has set his heart on them, a heart of love. God is a being who is supremely happy and a being who is burning with love for his people. The prophet Ezekiel later on pictured Israel as a rejected and shamed young woman who God embraces, cares for, and finally marries. It's an image of the most passionate kind of relationship, the love of a groom for his bride. And the Bible gives us an even bigger picture than that. Why does God set his love on Israel? What's the big picture in this story? It's that God is on an ultimate mission to restore his world and his creation that he's made. He plans to bring back goodness and peace and justice and shalom, wellness and health. And his agent for all of that was to be his people, Israel. That's why they're so important. God is going to show his love for the world through his love for his people, Israel. And what we find in the whole story of the Bible is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate true Israel. And we as the church are his body in the world. We now are about the business of recreation. Every church is a show home on a new estate showing what the future will look like when God returns and brings about the home where righteousness dwells. God is a God of love. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. And because God is loving, he's also merciful. And you think, really? Yes, God is even merciful in these ten plagues. Remember the gradual nature of them. God doesn't come in and destroy the, Israel, the Egyptians straight away. He brings them in gradually and gives them numerous opportunities to turn off the road to destruction. There are all these signs saying, don't go there, slow down, warning, stop, change direction. Even Pharaoh got a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance to change his mind. I wonder how many of us would have given Pharaoh that much rope if we'd had the power. There's mercy even in the plague of hailstones. God says, tomorrow at this time I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt. So give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that's not been brought in and, it, and, and they will die. 
There's a warning. You see, this time tomorrow, the officials who feared the word of the Lord hurried, and they, they brought their slaves and their livestock inside. Livestock. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. You see, God gives this mercy, this time, an opportunity. If you listen, turn, turn, turn. But the mercy has limits. Ultimately, once Pharaoh has hardened his heart a number of times, God hardens it. Imagine somebody, a boat going fast down a river towards a terrifying waterfall. And someone on the bank is shouting out, warnings, you can't go down there. Turn back, turn back now. That, going that way is destruction. And then they're jogging alongside and shouting to the people in the boat, come back now, turn around now. But they keep rowing. They keep rowing down. And then they get a rope and they throw it into the, into the river and say, grab the rope, come back before it gets too late. But the crazy rowers just keep on madly paddling downstream. Pharaoh has so many opportunities to turn back, to give up, to go to the shore, but he will not. And so near the end, God gives him a shove downstream and over he goes. That's what he asked for. This too is an important aspect of knowing the Lord. He is not a cuddly God. An indulgent granddad in the sky. He's not a tame lion. Romans says, behold, the kindness and severity of God. Kindness and severity. Justice and love. The lion and the lamb. He's not to be trifled with. You can't abuse his kindness forever. Like calluses on your fingers, a hardened heart will build up calluses over time until eventually you can feel no more. A hardened heart and a seared conscience are a very dangerous place to be because finally only judgment will await you. You see, we've got to know this Lord in all his richness, the maker of heaven and earth, the God of justice and love. He is not 2D. He's not a wishful projection We must know him as he really is and not as we imagine him to be. Therefore, it's vital for us to attend to the biblical witness because it is God's self-disclosure to us, his revelation. So I'm going to drop my third point here uh, as we're coming close in time and ask, if you know this God, what is a fitting response to such a Lord? What is a fitting response Surely it's a response of worship and awe. Who am I that you should call me your child? But I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. The response of humility and trust. Hebrews says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Are you a person here who really knows enough to come to Jesus Christ and repent and trust him and lean your life on him and you haven't done it yet, do it now. Are you a Christian here who is persisting in some stubborn pattern of disobedience? Stop it now. Are you a Christian here who is living in a life full of fear and doubt? Remember who he is, the one who loves you and calls you and will be there for you. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come to your word and we find things in it that we didn't write down, but you've revealed for us to teach us about yourself. We thank you that you are the one 
who holds the universe and the rolling spheres in constant motion and preserves our lives and gives us our next breath. We thank you that you are just. Wrongs will be put to right. Things will not continue as they are in this world. You will return. And yet you are a God of wonderful love, and we rest in that.